We can turn over in your Bibles to Acts. <laughs> Fooled you, didn't I? Acts chapter 18. And uh, we just want to go through some introductory uh, material as we begin our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, you have an outline there for you in your, in your bulletin, and we'll be trying to work our way through that today as we lay down a foundation. But as you turn over, we'll be reading that passage of Scripture a little later on, so you can just turn there in Acts chapter 18 as we go over the introductory material right now. You know, I think it's always important when we start to go through a book of the Bible in the way that we do it in an expository manner, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and work our way through, that you have some kind of a background, some kind of a foundation for the book. You can't just jump in chapter 1, verse 1, and start teaching because, well, why did he write this book? Why is it called 1 Corinthians? Who was the author? When was it written? There's a whole bunch of things we want to go through as we prepare our hearts for the study of this book in the coming weeks. Well, the the first thing is we when we want to lay a foundation, we're speaking of basically looking at the title of this book. It's it's we call it a book. It's a book of the Bible, but you have to remember it's a letter. Paul wrote this letter to a church in Corinth. That's why it's named First Corinthians. He actually wrote three letters. We only have two. The other one obviously wasn't inspired because it's not included in, in the canon of Scripture. But it's named for the city of Corinth, 1 Corinthians. Corinthians were people who dwelt in the city of Corinth where the church uh, to whom it was written was located. And what's interesting, when you look at the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote, with the exception of personal epistles addressed to either Timothy, Titus, or Philemon, those were personal letters, when he wrote to churches, they were always addressed to the the name of the city where the church was located. Okay, Romans was written to the church of Rome. Thessalonica, the church of Thessalonica, and so forth. And so we're going to find out a little bit more about this. The church in Corinth was founded by Paul on his um, second missionary journey. It was founded by Paul on his second missionary journey, and we're going to read about that in Acts 18. But we also uh, want to understand that the, the letter of First uh, Corinthians was a letter that he wrote out of concern to this church that he founded. So obviously the author is the next point here, and it's indicated in the first verse. He says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus in our brother Sothenes, to the church of God. So he wrote it. Paul wrote it. There's nobody that argues that fact. Well, there may be some, but they're, they're nuts. Okay, it's very clear that Paul wrote this letter. Okay, it can't be seriously questioned. His authorship can't be. And it's usually, it's, it's universally accepted that Paul wrote it by the, by the church since the first century. Very, from the very beginning, they recognized that Paul wrote this letter to the church at Corinth. Uh, he claims to have written it in first, verse 1 of chapter 1, verse 13, also chapter 3, verses 4 to 6, and chapter 4, verse 15, and also in chapter 16, verse 21, he claims to write it. So he himself claims to write it as he's writing it, but externally, this correspondence, this letter that he wrote was actually acknowledged that it was genuinely written by Paul since around A.D. 95. It was recognized externally outside of his realm of influence by Clement of Rome. Um, he uh, also, other people, uh, Ignatius, Polycarp, Tertullian, all these church people early on in the, the church were men who recognized that Paul wrote this letter. So we're going to move on because there's not any doubt that he wrote it. So the date of this letter, this epistle, it was most likely written in the first half of A.D., Okay, in the year of our Lord, 55. And most likely he wrote it from Ephesus uh, while Paul was on his third missionary journey. Now, we see here a couple slides. The first missionary journey, you can see up there, Paul's first missionary journey happened around A.D. 44 to 66. And you can read about that in Acts 13. Okay, and you see kind of he stays over there on the right side, kind of, and then on his uh, second 
missionary journey, you see that he ventures out a little further. Well, by the time, and that's around 49 to 52 A.D., by his third missionary journey, that was basically the time of this, uh, it was around A.D. 53 to 58 is the window that's given, and that's, we can read about that in Acts chapter 18 through 21. So the apostle intended to remain on at Ephesus to complete his three-year stay there. We're told that in Acts chapter 20, verse 31. He wanted to stay there until Pentecost. Uh, And so then he hoped to leave Ephesus and spend the winter in Corinth. And you can get this information in the book of Acts. um, His departure for Corinth was anticipated even as he wrote uh, and you we can read that over, if you look over at chapter 4, verse 19. He says, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And he mentions that in a bunch of other places, chapter 11, verse 34, chapter 16, verse 8. So he's writing this letter to this church that he founded out of concern. And we're going to find out what he's concerned about in a second. But while he's writing it, he's saying, hey, pretty soon I'm going to be there. And a lot of times, you know, I once in a while I'll before our trip to Hawaii to see the grandkids. I shoot them a little email or a little text or whatever you know we do nowadays. We don't really write letters. But um, for the most part, hey, I can't wait to get there. You know, I'm anticipating uh, having a good time. And, and most of us will do that when we're going to visit someone. Well, that's what Paul was doing. And so he anticipated his visit rather soon. Well, as far as the background and setting of this, the city of Corinth was located in southern Greece, okay, and I think there's a slide up there, I believe, um, that you can see the, the map there. All right, that's where Corinth is, okay? And uh, it's, it's a Roman province, even though it's in Greece. And it's the capital of the Roman province, Achaia. And it's about 45 miles west of Athens. And we're going to talk about more of this later and show you some other maps later. But uh, John Murray said this about the writing of Corinthians or about uh, the first letter to the church at Corinth. He talked about this church. He said, The church of the apostolic days embraced all nations, all kindreds, and peoples, and tongues. There is no evidence in the New Testament for the diversification of distinct denominations or anything tending to such diversification was condemned. So... The New Testament church tend to look to have a bunch of Methodists here, Baptists here, or, okay, you're of this skin color, you're going to worship with these people. They didn't think of that. It was Jews, Greeks, everybody came together in the body of Christ. And the emphasis was really unity within the body of Christ. He continues, he says, the emphasis falls upon the oneness of faith and the oneness of the fellowship of the saints. And we're going to see that through the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul continues to address the idea that the body of Christ is to be one in unity. Um, and not just um, by element that we're all part of the same body, but practically as well. And when you understand that theological concept that the body of Christ is one, it doesn't matter whether you worship here in California or you worship in Pennsylvania, Okay, if you're part of the body of Christ, you're one body. It doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter what your background is. It's irrelevant. And see, we need to apply that spiritual truth to us practically as a congregation, as a church today. And so that's what we're going to be seeing Paul is addressing. Now, he's not holding up the Corinthian church as the epitome of an example. We're going to find out they had a lot of issues. We're going to go over some of those. So as far as some historical and theological themes, um, the major thrust of this letter, this epistle we call it, that's basically another name for letter, is corrective behavior rather than doctrine. All right. In Romans, remember, he, he, he dug down deep, Paul dug down deep and shared with us all this theological truth. And then he said, here's how you apply it. Paul does that all the time. He does it in the book of Ephesians. If you want a quick outline of the book of Ephesians, 1 through 3 is doctrine. 4 through 6 is practical application of the doctrine. Paul does that all the time, and it's a good way to teach, right? You can't know what you're doing unless you're taught what to do. And so that's what he continues to do. But here, the major thrust is is 
correcting behavior. It's not so much doctrine. Now, we're going to touch on a lot of doctrinal issues as we go through this book, but that's not his emphasis. Paul gives this doctrinal teaching, but he relates it directly to matters of sin and righteousness that, is de- that the First Corinthian church is dealing with, the people in Corinth. Um, I think it was John MacArthur that said this, wrong living always stems from wrong belief. Wrong living always stems from wrong belief. You know, you find a lot of people going down a road that is not theologically correct in churches all over the place. And you wonder, why are they doing this? Because they're not being taught, because they believe wrongly what the Scripture says. An example of that is how many times have you been in a prayer meeting and someone says, well, praise God, we have three people because the Bible says that where three or more are gathered in his name, I am in the midst of them. And I always thought as a new Christian, I thought, well, so if I'm praying by myself, the Lord's not there? That can't be what that verse means. It's not what that verse means. It has nothing to do with prayer, as a matter of fact, if you look at the context of it. But people apply verses like that all the time. Why? Because they don't know the Scriptures. They're not taught in the scriptures. And so when you misapply truth, what happens? You end up living wrongly. And that happens across the board. And so Paul dials down on some things. Um, He deals with things, sexual sins, for example, including divorce, um, that are related to disobeying God's plan for marriage and family. He does that in chapter 7. He talks about proper worship. What are we to be as a church on a Sunday morning as we worship God, as we worship Christ? What, do we, what, do we, what does it look like? Paul addresses that. There should be order. There should be a, a semblance of reverence. You know, we're not here to have a party on Sunday mornings. We're here to worship the most high God and creator, the one who saved us. And we need to do that by recognizing God's holy character. We need to understand the spiritual identity of the church. And even he touches on things like the Lord's Supper. I mean, they turned the Lord's Supper into a den of sin. It was disgusting what they did. Uh, It's not impossible, or it's not possible for the church, it's not possible for the church to be edified faithfully and effectively unless the church as believers understand and exercise their spiritual gifts. Well, guess what? Paul talks about spiritual gifts. He talks about important subjects like the resurrection. If Christ is not risen, he says in verse chapter 15, he says, if Christ isn't risen, then what are we doing? Let's just go home, pack our bags. doesn't make any sense. He deals with God's judgment on believers. He deals with the right understanding of which will produce right motives in godly living. He talks about things like idols and false gods that they were dealing with. He talks about the idea of what godly love looks like within the body of Christ. He talks about the right use of our gifts, our spiritual gifts. And even the right knowledge about the things of God. He covers all those things. He deals with the cross, divine wisdom, human wisdom, the work of the Spirit. He talks about carnality. He talks about eternal rewards. He talks about the transformation, transformative effect of salvation upon us when we're saved. He talks about sanctification. He talks about the nature of Christ, union with him, the divine role of women and men talks about marriage and divorce. He talks about spirit baptism. He talks about the indwelling and gifting of the spirit. He talks about the unity of the church as one body. He talks about the theology of love and the doctrine of the resurrection. I put there just a list of problems that Paul was addressing in your outline there. And we're going to go through these. You're going to see these rise up as we go through this study of this book. 
And so it's, it's important to understand that Paul has a purpose in writing this letter. It wasn't just, ah, I think I'll write my buddies a, a letter. No, he, he is driven by a purpose. And it's to point out ways in which the church of Corinth was falling away from what he originally taught them. Now, there are some interpretive challenges. This isn't in your outline. But there's some controversial issues as well. By far, probably the most controversial passages in 1 Corinthians are chapter 12, 13, and 14. And the reason is, is because it deals with gifts. It deals with spiritual gifts. And so today in the church, it particularly addresses the gift of miracles, healings, and things like that. But it also talks about the gift of tongues, or what I will call them as languages, because that's what it was. And so within the church today, we have cessationists, and you have non-cessationists. And they're like this. They're looking at the same passage, but they're like this. And so we're going to work our way through that. As a church, we're a a cessationist church. We believe that the Scriptures teach clearly, and you're going to see this when we get to this point in Scripture, that certain gifts, certain miraculous gifts, the gift of languages or tongues, Paul says they will cease. And we're going to look at that structure of the language there, and, and boy, why do we think that has happened? Why other people within the body of Christ think that it continues? And these are not light things. These aren't things to say, well, we're all part of the body of Christ. Don't worry about it. No. See, things like this divide the body of Christ. And there's a lot of churches, to be honest with you, that won't address these things because they don't want to offend maybe people who are speaking in tongues, as they say. Uh, But are they doing it biblically? Are they doing it legitimately? Is it a language they're speaking or is it just babble? If you've ever been around people that speak in tongues, more than not, it's not a language. It's just, whatever. And I'm not saying it, there's not maybe a, a spiritual power behind that, but I can guarantee you this, it's not the Spirit of Christ. So you can second guess who, whose spirit is, is motivating them. A lot of it may be psychosemantic, who knows? But when you talk to someone who has practiced that, boy, they're just sold out. They can't believe it because they've had this experience. And so they're unwilling to separate their experience from what the truth of God says. Or they are willing to separate it, I should say. They're, They're living by their experience. And when you point to the Word of God and say, look, this is why this doesn't happen anymore today. These were foundational gifts because the church was brand new and and God needed a way of exercising authority given to the apostles, showing other people in the world that these men were directly sent by Christ. And so that's why they got to speak in languages they did not know, as you read in the book of Acts. They were healing people. They were doing things that were far above their pay grade. And it was to affirm them in the foundation of the New Testament church. So that's one area of controversy. Another area, chapter 7, as I said, mentions, talks about divorce. That's a hot topic in our churches today. When is it legitimate? When is it not? What do we do if we get divorced? How do we get remarried? All those things Paul talks about. Um, And he talks about even things like, there's an obscure phrase it says the baptized for the dead. And sometimes people think, well, you know, they make up their own theology around that. We're going to explore all that. So as far as an outline goes, you have the introductory remarks here in chapter 1. And then you have the calling and benefits of sainthood. In other words, as believers in Christ, we are forgiven of all of our sin even though we still sin, (laughs) okay? And yet there's a classification for us as his chosen children. And it's not just uh, the saints in the Catholic Church. We are called saints. The Bible calls believers saints. And we need to understand what that means. Are we living up to our calling in Christ? 
And then he deals with disunity in the church. We're going to talk a lot about that. He talks about immorality in the church, marriage in the church, liberty in the church, worship in the church, the hope of the church, which is the resurrection, a charge to the church, talking about stewardship, talks about giving, all those kind of things. Um, So we're going to look at all that in the coming weeks. But today, as you turn over to Acts, I want you to uh, look at chapter 18 with me, because I want to cover today, why did Paul write this letter? What was the pressing issue? How did this come about? And so Acts chapter 18, we're going to be talking about Corinth directly, and uh, you'll see there the outline in your bulletin. Um, So why did Paul write 1 Corinthians? Well, let's read chapter 18. You can follow along in your Bibles. As I begin in verse 1, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila and a native native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, remember he was a tent maker, he was of the same trade, And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for them, for they were, or worked with them, for they were uh, tent makers by trade. Now, what's interesting, scholars tell us it was approximately, you know, 50 to 55 AD when this, when this actually, uh, Paul took what is going on here is his, his missionary journey. And as he goes on this journey, he comes to the city of Corinth. This is his second missionary journey. And he meets these two Jewish people, Aquila and Priscilla. He joins with them because they have the same background. Okay, It'd be like if you met somebody at a coffee shop and you were in the tech field and they were in the tech field. Well, you immediately have some kind of a relationship. And, and that's what uh, happens here. And he joins with them. And it tells us in, in verse 2 that they've been ordered out of Rome because of all the anti-Semitic policies that the Roman government had at the time, Claudius, the government, had cast all the Jews out of Rome. Well, they had to go somewhere, so they ended up in Corinth. But Paul has been drawn to these people because they're Jews, they're tent makers, and as you know, uh, they just had those things in common. So he stayed with these two, and he worked with them making tents day after day. Now, this is something that Paul did on the side. This, this was not... Um, you know, necessarily a, a part-time thing for him. This was probably his full-time job, okay? And he ministered to the body of Christ on the side. And so if you would ask, well, you know, what would be the time frame here? How would he do this? Well, some scholars say that they can actually tell that Paul probably finished his tent-making business around or he began around, uh, around 11 a.m., and he began preaching the gospel after 11 a.m. So he'd do the tent making in the morning, and then at 11 a.m. to about 4 in the afternoon, he would preach. He would minister to the body of Christ. He would go out and share the gospel with people. And they can conclude that because there are certain places that Paul was preaching the gospel during the day, and he co- could only have been there in the afternoon. Uh, he was playing his... His, he was doing his tent making uh, very early in the morning, probably. And then he would go out and he would minister during the day. Now, for Paul, he had some kind of ailment. We don't know what it was. But to be under that heat of the day and the midday out there ministering to people continuously, that would be hard. That would be difficult. But he was willing to do it for the gospel. So it says in verse 4, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. While Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, um, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So when, by the time Silas and Timothy arrived in Macedonia, or came from Macedonia, uh, he was, some believe he was giving up his tent making business. He was doing more ministry full time. And he began to rely on people's support within the church. And both of them in the synagogue ministered to Jews as well. And you look at verse 
6, what begins to happen, it says, And when they opposed and reviled him, Paul the Jews, he took out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So Paul tried to minister to the Jews. They wouldn't have it. They blasphemed. They were hostile. Uh, And so he said, okay, I'm done here. I'm going to go meet up with the Gentiles. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Verse 7. And he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titus uh, uh, Justice, a worshiper of God. Titus Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. So you can see his realm of influence here, Paul. Verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. Now, that's a pretty significant thing. Together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So Paul began to preach the gospel. First to the Jews, they blasphemed him. So he went to the Gentiles, and he was finding immediate fruit from his labor. There were people who were beginning to be transformed by the power of God. They believed in the gospel. They were actually getting baptized, and they began to witness their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But, in, you know, even though he was successful among the Gentiles here, the Lord was using Paul, when you look at the, the next verse, it kind of insinuates that Paul was maybe um, a little fearful, that Paul maybe was just a little beside himself. Some, some even say maybe he was a little depressed at this point. In his ministry, because it says in verse nine, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. In other words, God supernaturally appeared to the apostle Paul in a vision. And he says this, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Verse 10, for I am with you and none, no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. So the Lord tells him, hey, nobody's going to hurt you. Don't worry about it. So he must have been worrying about it. You know, he he must have been, you know, beside himself over this because he had dealt with this before. This isn't the first time Paul went out and met opposition. So maybe he's thinking, yeah, that stoning thing before, you know, my body's a little achy. I don't know if I want to go down this road again. I mean, you know, these people, even though they're, they're, you know, responding, the Gentiles are, you know, we got these Jews to deal with, you know, they could end up stoning me again. I don't know if I want to continue this. And I think he really did believe that maybe he was, that was going to happen. Some form of persecution was going to happen. And uh, he was going into the city, as we'll see a little later, which was one of the most ungodly cities on the face of the earth, Corinth was. And so he feared the consequences of his preaching the gospel. You know, that's what always happens when you're true to the word of God and you preach the truth in an uncompromising way. The world is not going to open their arms and say, oh, yes, tell me more. That's not going to happen. And if that does happen, then you might want to question what message is being given. Because to be embraced by the world or the wisdom of the world, is not something that the church should be about. Now, we're not just here to tick people off and offend people either. We want to build bridges with our community, with our neighbors, with our unsaved relatives, whoever it may be, but we want to do so in an uncompromising way when we represent the truth of the gospel and the truth of God, for that matter. And so, even though all these people were coming to Christ and they were being baptized, he was a little hesitant. And sometimes that's how the Lord works, right? The moment you begin to make some headway in your spiritual life, all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, you begin to question, well, I don't know if I should continue to do this, or maybe I shouldn't. And you, and you begin to want to compromise. And so God here supernaturally, and I think by way of application, even speaks to our hearts to say, hey, don't worry about it. God has our back. When we represent Christ in a God-honoring way, okay, he's gonna, he may allow us to go through some persecution, but you know what? In the end, we will be on the winning side. So we don't have to fear about that. It's one of the, the songs that we sang about this morning. Um, verse 11, he said he stayed there about a year and six months. About 18, 18 months, teaching the word of God among them. 
So he spent 18 months in this place. It would be like, I think it was far worse in San Francisco, Corinth. Far worse. But even if I said, hey, you know, I want you to go down to uh, San Francisco for, for 18 months. And I want you to start a ministry there and have a ministry. You know, most of us would probably, you want me to do what? <laughs> okay, we don't even like going there a lot of times. This is filthy, it's dirty, it's a lot of weird stuff going on there. That we don't feel, you know, is honoring to the Lord. But here's Paul saying, no, I'm going to spend 18 months there. And day by day, he ministered among those who were coming to Christ. And he was getting a little more and more encouraged. It says he was teaching the word of God among those who believed. See, he wasn't just these kind of people that go into a city, put up a tent, hold an evangelistic meeting and leave. That's usually not very effective. He said, no, I'm going to roll up my sleeves and I'm going to see people come to Christ. And then I'm going to spend time with those people, discipling them and ministering them and teaching them the word of God. And you could only imagine if you began to spend time with a new convert over a period of 18 months, your hearts would begin to grow together. You'd be knit together in Christ. And so this is what was happening with Paul with this church in Corinth. One by one, their hearts were knitted to him. Now, a massive clash was inevitable. Uh, The Apostle Paul's coming in as the first preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ into this extremely pagan, uh, extremely idolatrous, extremely immoral city, the city of Corinth. And so sooner or later, there is going to be a clash of powers the powers of godliness and ungodliness. Sooner or later, they're going to come together in a big boom. And we're going to see this lived out and, and written about in, in the book of 1 Corinthians. So Paul was coming preaching, what? The straight and narrow way, the way of God. Yet here he is in this city. It was a city that stood for the broad way, the broad path that leads to destruction, the way of the sinful flesh. And Paul says, this is exactly who needs to hear the message. And so Paul was coming to do just that. Now, we know, because we can read through the book of 1 Corinthians, that, you know what, and the Bible for that matter, in the end, it all works out, right? But can you imagine being Paul not knowing what's going to happen? Doesn't know if he's going to be alive tomorrow, dead tomorrow, stoned, thrown out of the city. You know, so this church of Jesus Christ was formed, this little assembly and uh, we're going to find out as we read through the book of 1 Corinthians what happens with most churches happened to this church, even though this church was founded and mentored and ministered to by the Apostle Paul himself. What did they do? They began to bear the marks of the surrounding Corinthian lifestyle um, that they even knew before their conversion to Christ. A lot of times churches will take on the likeness of the society in which they are. I know that down when we were down in the desert in Indio, okay, um, what was an issue in a lot of churches down there in the desert because it was always so hot, one of the biggest issues that churches had to deal with, and you might think this is crazy, but we had to constantly address women's apparel. Constantly. Like almost every other week. Because we'd have women show up. You know, it's 120 degrees out. I get it. But, I mean, in these skimpy little outfits. And it's like, you know, that's that's not what we're called to do. And, you know, we, we had to address that over and over and over again. And some churches wouldn't address it. And so pretty soon what happens, the whole congregation is basically living like the society in which they live, and they begin to take on, you know, the, the, uh, the lifestyle of the people around them. And pretty soon, they begin to compromise in certain areas. See, the Church of Jesus Christ in Corinth, as well as in Redwood City, was meant to stand for righteousness, truth, sanctification in the Holy Spirit. That's what we're called to do. But what was happening to them was they were beginning to mirror 
the society in which they lived. Hortius Bonar says this, the great saint of God. He said this. He said, I looked for the church and I found it in the world. And I looked for the world and I found it in the church. See, that's what has happened to our modern day churches. They have so much wanted to be liked by the world. They had so much wanted to be structured like the world. You know, you have a CEO mentality within a lot of big mega churches. They're applying principles of the secular business world to their church, and they're thinking, oh, this is good. Well, there, there may be some good things that we can learn from those models, but I think the Bible has already given us a, a book to go by, some instruction on how to deal with the church. So that's exactly what happened to the church in Corinth. They began to kind of resemble, they began to assimilate the city in which they lived, and all of the sins of that city came right into the church. And so three years later, after Paul had visited this little place on his second missionary journey, as he was in the city of Ephesus, he received a letter from the church of Corinth. And they were, some of the concerned members of the church began to express to Paul in this letter some awful difficulties that they were dealing with within this small little church. Uh, Things like facing the world, all the flesh, the devil, all all the things they had to grapple with in their society. And now the book of 1 Corinthians that we have before us this morning is Paul, the apostles, reply to the letter that he received from them. So he's reciprocating. He's, He's answering back a letter that they had received, uh, that he had received from the church of Corinth while he was residing in Ephesus. It's also a reply to the verbal account that he received from the house of Chloe that we, we read about here in this, this letter of 1 Corinthians. Uh, things like, hey, they're mentioning about, they're talking about divisions among the people in the church. Uh, they're kind of teaming up against each other. That was brought to him by word of mouth, a messenger of, of three people. Um, how many times do you hear this? I've heard this so many times. And after reading through this book several times, preparing for a study, I, I don't know if I want this. Um, you hear this all the time. You know, <clears throat> we just need to get back to being the New Testament kind of church. You ever hear that? People say that? We need to be a New Testament kind of church. Well, after you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you might want to second guess that. Because that's one church I don't want to be like. Period. Because if we're like the book, or we're like the church in Corinth, we have serious trouble. Because they had serious trouble. Not only were their troubles known within the church, among the church, their troubles were known to be in the church by the outside world. They knew what was going on in the church of Corinth. Uh, They knew it was in shambles. And it was reflecting all the sinfulness. You could go to Corinth and you could come to the Corinthian church and you wouldn't see any difference. There'd be no difference at all. There was sexual sin going on even over the communion table. All kinds of things going on. People being drunk. So all this stuff was going on within this church that Paul had founded. And now he's replying to some of these concerns. It was wrapped up in immorality, drunkenness. Today, there are churches that are, are similar in nature. You know, there's, there's churches today that really push the idea of antinomianism. And what that means is basically they're against the law. To be a Antinomian means you're against the law. You're anti the law. So you don't want to be legalistic. And so you jump to the furthest extreme. And you just put license on sin after sin after sin. And if you doubt me, I've talked to pastors that have to deal with this. You know, wow, I don't know what to do with, you know, two individuals in the choir. They're both married, but they're sleeping together. Why are you allowing this to happen in your church? 
well, you know, they've been in the church for a long time. They got really good voices. And are you serious? Listen to yourself. But people are unwilling to dial down on things like that. And so when it comes to being like the New Testament church, maybe early on in the book of Acts, but eventually even that church um, was defiled by the world. And it happens to every church to some degree or another. But we need to be aware of that. Uh, We don't want to become antinomian in our behavior, licensing sin just to love the person. That's, That's not honoring to Christ. We dealt with this when we were in Romans, right? Remember when Paul addressed the Romans, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The idea that, hey, well, God's grace can never, you know, it's always going to take care of your sins, so why not just go sin more so you can get more of God's grace? Uh, In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you kind of wonder if he is addressing such if this is in his mind, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, excuse me, verse 12, chapter 1, verse 12, he says this. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided, he says in verse 13? Was Paul, cruci- or was, was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And then he says this, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you may say that you were baptized in my name. Why would Paul say that? Because they weren't living a life that's worthy of being called a believer. They all had their own little sex, and they were following all their own little different leaders. It was a defiled church, a divided church, and a disgraced church. That the word church, just remember, what does that word mean? In the original language, it means called out from, right? The church of Christ is called out from the world. We're the ones that are to be the, the light of the world. We're the ones to be the salt of the earth in a generation where they have just darkness. All right? That's what we're called to be. We're not called to just kind of fit in. But see, this world, this church here in Corinth was disgracing the name of Christ. I mean, it was wrecked by divisions. You had powerful leaders who were just constantly promoting themselves. They thought of themselves more than what they should have. They would have a band of loyal followers. And these people were not just bland people. They were very charismatic people. And I don't mean that in the gift way. I mean, they had a very charismatic personality. To the degree that one of the leaders, it seems, was having an affair with his own stepmother. We're going to talk about this in this book, if you can believe that or not. And instead of disciplining that man, you know what the Corinthian church did? They, they used it as a boast of freedom. That he has in Christ the right to do such a thing. Because his sins are forgiven. So who are we to judge? I mean, can you imagine that? But that's what was going on. He is forgiven. He's he's not a child of the law, but he's a child of grace. And well, if he wants to do that, you know. Some of the church members were suing each other in secular courts. Some of the church... Like to visit prostitutes? Can you believe that? Now, there was a segment of the Corinthian church, obviously the people that wrote to Paul out of concern, that weren't all that bad. But what happened was the people that, all, that weren't all that bad, that kind of wanted to do the right thing, as a backlash against all this immorality that was being lived out in front of them in the church... What did they do? They swung the pendulum to the other side. And they began to become very legalistic. And they said, hey, you know, we're not going to allow this awful immorality, all the sinfulness to go. And they went to the other extreme. And so because you had this brother in the church who was sleeping with his mother-in-law, 
then what would happen is the people who wanted to do the right thing would say, well, you know what? It's better just to remain celibate. (laughs) Don't have any relationships with anybody. And they swung to the opposite extreme because marriage is such an issue. Just don't get married. And so they began to almost say that as like a edict, like, hey, you have to do this. Or they would say things like, well, you know, um, they should not touch a man or a woman. They should have no sexual relations whatsoever. And so they began to swing the pendulum toward the completely opposite direction, which is not biblical either. You had all these weird prophecies that were said to have taken place by people who were speaking in this uh, tongues, this language, babble language, didn't make any sense. Yet they were doing it regularly in the worship service. They were disrupting others with their gift. While people were trying to listen to the, 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 the preacher or whatever, they were disrupting the congregation using what they called their spiritual gift to do so. They weren't doing it according to the biblical plan. And we're going to talk about that as we go through the book. Well, what was happening? The church of Corinth was filled with chaos. Have you ever been in a chaotic church? I have. Where everybody in the congregation is talking at the same time. And they're all, usually it's charismatic, so they're usually speaking in tongues. They're raising their hands. Oh, blah, blah. And the poor pastor's up there trying to shout over everybody. And, and what you walk away with, what, what in the world was that? What, what just happened? And yet you hear people who are part of that segment of the body of Christ. Well, we're just having church. Well, that's not the kind of church that is described in the New Testament. That's chaos. Plus you had people that you wonder if they were even believers because they didn't even believe in the bodily resurrection. And they were within the church. See, whenever a church begins to lower its standards and just kind of welcome everybody, you see this on banners around churches, even in San Carlos and Redwood City. I drive by them all the time. We welcome all. We affirm all. What are they saying? They're they're welcoming sin. They're affirming sin. And I get it. It has to deal with homosexuality and that kind of stuff. But why would you do that? See, they have an improper understanding of the parameters of which the New Testament sets down for a biblical New Testament church. How do we worship? What are we called to do here on a Sunday morning? We need to be aware of those things. Now, I would venture to say that there's not a lot of churches around today that are facing what the church at Corinth was facing. I mean, on every segment, every corner, there was something wrong. There was something wrong. What a church as an example of how we ought to behave, how we ought to be holy, how we ought to regulate ourselves in this ungodly generation in which we live, because our, our, our generation is filled with darkness, it's filled with drunkenness. They're drunk on wealth and alcohol, intoxication, drug abuse, all kinds of things. They intoxicate themselves on immorality, on vice, all all sorts of things. But as a church, we're called to be holy. We're called to be set apart. We're called to be Christ-like And live in a Christ-like way, manner, in a world that is full of ungodliness and wickedness. Well, the first thing I want us to see here is this was a city of degradation. A city of degradation. It's basically in three ways here. When you look at the historical records of 
the city of Corinth. By the time Paul actually arrived, came to the city of Corinth, he arrived there in the autumn probably of A.D. 50-51. It was a Roman colony. Now, you may or may not know this. If you look at your atlas, Corinth is in the middle of Greece. And you say, well, why was it a Roman colony? Well, once it was ruled by the Greeks. It was a great city when they ruled it. And then there was a revolt against the Romans, and they lost the revolt. So Roman took over the city of Corinth. They said, we're not going to allow this to happen again, so we're taking over your city. And so when, when Paul comes to the city of Corinth, Rome was being ruled by, or Corinth was being ro- ruled by the Romans, probably for over 100 years already. Now, Corinth was a strategic commercial harbor. If you look at some of the slides here I have for you, it was basically on the crosshairs, the crossroads of the entire world. It was very strategically placed. You see there, that first uh, slide there, it's on that kind of isthmus, kind of a peninsula there almost, that connects that segment of land. And so everybody who was anyone had to go through this thing for trade and things like that between the the Adriatic Ocean and the Aegean Sea. So it was a harbor for both the west side and the east side. So people who were traveling from the west on trade would come and they would um, go down to the docks, the harbor at Corinth, that's where they would unload their goods. And people who were coming from the east, they would do the same. So everyone was traveling down from Athens, the capital. They would come right through Corinth. So on every angle, no matter where you had to go, you had to go through Corinth. And people who were coming up from the south would also go through Corinth. And so it was right in the crosshairs of, a, of, a, of this big you know, metropolitan area because it just grew and grew and grew and grew. It was the center of humanity and civilization during the day. One commentator says this, Objects of luxury soon found their way to the markets, which were visited by every nation in the civilized world. Arabian balsam, Phoenician dates, Libyan ivory, Babylonian carpets, Cilician goat hair, Laconian wool, Phrygian slaves. In fact, he calls it the vanity fair of the East. (laughs) Some men even call it the... The Bridge of Greece. And you can see it. I mean, it's right there on that little isthmus, right there when everybody's got to go through there. Some people call it the Lounge of Greece because everyone who went to Corinth wanted to rest up and live it up. It's kind of like, you know, what what was done in Corinth stayed in Corinth, you know, kind of like Vegas kind of mentality. That's what it was a (laughs) hundredfold. It was an extremely wealthy place, it was populous. And it was a very uh, pluralistic city. You could believe whatever you wanted there. And if you go to chapter 1 in the book of Corinthians, if you look at verse 26, you can see just how the attitude, you can kind of just hear it come through here. In verse 26, it says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now we know that this part of of Greece, okay, Corinth, was extremely intellectual. The Greeks just loved their intellect. Um, You know, when you you speak of the Greek word wisdom, I love it because it's the word uh, Sophia, which is my granddaughter's name. So, but this was kind of a, a cosmopolitan center for the world back then. The population, they say, was probably between 500,000 and 700,000. All right? And you say, well, that doesn't seem like that many people. Well, it's only four miles wide, this isthmus where, where this, this land was. So it was an extremely busy place. Um, 
So it was this strategic commercial harbor. But secondly, it was also a hotbed of heathenism. It was just the center of it. It had many gods. Um, Probably the most famous god that you hear about was Aphrodite, the goddess of love. You know, you, you see all these things. And, and even today, you know, there are, there are um, semblances of some of the temples and things like that that you can see. Now, you know, these are mostly, uh, well, they're all pagan gods. And they would always have all this uh, sexual things around them constantly. And so you can imagine as a church trying to stay pure and try to stay apart from that, it would be rather uh, difficult. Uh, the historians tell us that at night, thousands maybe of prostitutes would come down from the temple and they would infiltrate the whole town. You know, uh, conservative maybe hundreds, but some say even thousands would come down because hey, it was it was a rich place. There was people there that wanted to party and they were there to take their money, and so you know, uh, prostitution was a very um, popular. Uh, way that these women would would make money. It was so bad. The sexual nature of the sins there was so bad. <clears throat> they even had a a a word <laughs> to describe. You know, when when you found out that somebody committed fornication, all right, they would say that well, they Corinthianized. <laughs> That's it was just commonplace. To Corinthianize was to commit fornication. And uh, if you were called a Corinthian girl, you wouldn't want to be called that. You know, that's saying you're basically just like a prostitute, a very loose individual. Um, So you, you, you sense this just heathen influence. And they also, along with their heathen influence, had the idea that, you know what, we're all okay. We're all equal and we can do whatever we want. They had this relativistic attitude toward living. And, you know, that's why it's, when we read through this book, we're going to see a lot of things that relate to our modern day society. Because it's very similar. Um, The ideal freedom without any restraints or laws. That's, that was what they, they lived for. Well, the third thing also, it was a center of athletics. It was a center of athletics. And they had the um, Isthmian Games there, which was a very popular thing, kind of like our modern-day Olympics, you might say. They had an outdoor stadium that seated 18,000 people. 18,000 people. Um, they had an indoor stadium that held 3,000. Now you say, well, that's not that big. Well, it was back then. You know, that's a pretty good-sized place. So they had all this kind of a thing, and it just kind of just it just completed the whole circle of immorality and, and all that stuff. If you look over at Romans 1, I just want to read these verses for us because it applies to Corinth. And I think, you know, maybe Paul had this in mind uh, to some degree. Romans chapter 1, Paul wrote this to the, Paul was writing this epistle from Corinth to the church at Rome, and you wonder as he's writing what he's thinking about, if he's not thinking about Corinth. He says, for the wrath of God, verse 18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Now they're without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and foolish and their foolish hearts were dark and claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, 
to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now they know God's righteous, though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You'll wonder if he wasn't thinking of the church or the city even of Corinth when he was writing there to Rome. And you can understand there in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, where he says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear with much trembling. How would you like to be assigned to preach in a place like that? I mean, we can't even get up the courage to go down to, you know, city square here in Redwood City and hand out little tracts. Can you imagine going into this, the seat of debauchery and standing up for Christ? Wow. I mean, what an amazing thing. Paul was used by God greatly there. Well, the second thing quickly is it was not just that it was a church of degradation, but it was also a church in division in chapter in verse uh, First uh, Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, he says, For it has been repeated to me by Chloe's people that there are quarreling among you, my brothers. Verse 12, what I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? The idea is no, he is not. And so the one thing that you have to understand is that the body of Christ is called to be one. And because of the nature in which the society they grew up in, it became very easy because they would have things that they would call patrons, and patrons were kind of leaders in the society, and certain sects would follow them and follow others depending on your financial status or what was being taught or whatever. And so when it came to the church, they just brought that right into the church. And so they just naturally would, oh, I like Apollos, I like Paul, I like this person, I like... So they all had their little sects. And so the church itself was divided. And the last thing was... Not only it was a church in division, but it was, there was a crisis of doctrine. We're going to cover some very, very heavy things. Things like marriage, divorce, incest, the Lord's table. Talk about head coverings. Resurrection. Um, what should you give in your giving? All that stuff... The common denominator of all this is their, their upbringing in pagan religion. And because they were brought up in this pagan religion, then they brought that into the church. All these things were just being uh, driving the body of Christ apart. And so the thing that we want to keep in mind, you know, someone said this, the church in the United States is 3,000 miles wide, but it's only a half inch deep. <laughs> uh, you know, you can find a church on any corner. In other words, but what are they teaching their folks? You know, remember, wrong teaching leads to wrong behavior. And so as we go through this book, we want to make sure that <clears throat> we're not just looking outward. We want to be looking inward. We want to be looking in our own hearts and asking God, okay, what would you have me to learn as we go through this together? Um, because, you know, we want to reach out. We want to see the lost come to Christ. Therefore, we have to have contact with the lost. We're not told to come here and just become a little holy huddle and never affect 
the society in which we live. We're called to go out and share the gospel boldly with those who've yet to hear and hand out tracts and do all those things. Uh, and yet still maintain our purity in a lost and fallen sinful world. Well, I pray that you're up for the adventure. It's going to be fun. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be convicting, but uh, that's what we have to look forward to. So next week, we'll look at the first couple of verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you uh, wrote this book through the Apostle Paul. And Father, you left it for us as a record of really how things are to go within the church, within your church. And Lord, I, I thank you that, you know, as we read through some of these problems, I'm not aware of that we possess some of these these major issues in our church, but we never know. There, there could be something going on we don't know about, but you do. And Lord, I pray that we would dial down on our own lives as individual believers, that we'd be willing to examine ourselves. And Father, that we would do everything we can to live for your glory in this lost and dying world. Father, that somehow people would see in us the light of Christ, they would taste the salt of, of, of righteousness, and Lord, that it would draw them, that it would convict them of their sin, that it would draw them to the Savior. Lord, we, we long to see many come to faith in Christ, to be transformed by the power of the gospel. And Father, we just uh, pray that you would keep us on the right path, that you would help us to live and teach and, and run this, this congregation in an uncompromising way, and yet still have the love of Christ is the center and his grace. We thank you. We pray for any here today who's yet to put their, their faith and trust in Christ. Lord, you said it's never too late. You can always acknowledge your sin before a holy God and cry out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a prayer that God will hear when it's prayed from a sincere heart. And he'll give you the information you need to, to make things right with your creator as you confess your sin to him and turn from your sin and turn to the Savior. We just thank you and we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.